This is the Author Archive podcast. This episode is a fabulous book, Live and Let Die, is by John Higgs, and it's subtitled Bond, the Beatles, and the British Psyche. John, good to see you. Now, one of the things about this is it all starts on a day in October 1962, just before we had the coldest winter on record, mm-hmm. and you hadn't even had the decency to be born by then. So, <laughs> right about it. As a spectator from now. Yeah, and yes, you're you're absolutely right. You're talking about the 5th of October 1962 when the very first James Bond film and the very first Beatles record were both released on a very, very windy um, Friday afternoon. Um, And it's just such a a beautiful coincidence because neither of the Bond films or the Beatles in themselves really make any sense in our and in the rest of culture they just you know the idea that you could create a a film series with a hero that is going to last for 60 years and have like 25 sequels and every one of those films will be massively successful it's just impossible no one can do that it makes no sense at all the bond phenomenon is just crazy and in in a similar way the idea that a band can do what the beatles have done is it's just implausible absolutely implausible so i just thought it very interesting to look at these things together because they're kind of these they're kind of like two cultural monsters in our in our cultural sort of landscape that there's nothing quite like them but they're odd and they're they're stranger than we think and you give them sides like two football teams the good uns and the bad uns really yeah i mean they 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 do seem to lend themselves very well to love and death so um, what the Freudians would call Eros and Thanatos, the, 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 the death drive and the, the drive to open ourselves up and become something larger, um, uh, which, according to the Freudians, those are the sort of two primary drives behind our nature. So it's very tempting to see these, these two cultural monsters that appeared at the same time um, as opposites, as sort of opposing forces that are sort of um, we're trying to sort of work out who we should be now and who we want to be as a, as a country. Now, one of the people who doesn't come out as a hero to me is um, Ian Fleming. I don't, yeah. I don't think I'd have liked him very much. If he was voting now, I think I know which party he would have voted for. <laughs> yes, I think so. No, he doesn't come out at all well. This is true. And... Um, uh, just before the book came out, the, the British Library got in touch and said, oh, we're having a bond night. Would you like to come and do a talk? And we're doing a thing for Kim Sherwood's book, Double or Nothing. And it's, you know, I said, absolutely, that sounds great. And then they got in touch a bit later and said, oh, apparently the Ian Fleming estate doesn't want you to come. So we're going to have to, like, de-invite you. And if they'd have read the book, right, I, I would have totally understood. I would have thought, oh, absolutely. I, I, can see, I can see them doing that. He doesn't come across well. But they hadn't read the book. It was just like, someone's writing about Ian Fleming in 2022. We're not going to like it. Let yeah. me just take a for instance. Mm. Um, uh, I am, uh, we're talking on Zoom, and I can see you, and you can see me. And I think we've both got a cup of tea. Um, yes. Yes. A cup of tea each. Now, Ian Fleming would not have approved of that, would he? 
No, and because we know so much about Ian because all his opinions and prejudices and biases, he would pour into the character of James Bond. So you get these, these uh, in multiple books, there'd be sort of screeds against tea. Bond was a coffee drinker. Tea, he seemed to think, was the... Um, the end of the British Empire, the opium of the masses that destroyed the, 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 the will of the British people. He has this really imperialistic take on why coffee is the only, only drink for a man, you know. And it's, uh, it's, what, it's, it's one of those subjects where the Beatles and the Bond uh, phenomena just clash so heavily because the, the Beatles are just constantly drinking tea. They're just obsessed with tea. You have... You have um, there's like fanzines and um, Twitter accounts called the Teetles, which is just nothing but the Beatles drinking tea. And when, you know, Get Back was on Disney Plus, Peter Jackson's Get Back, they were they uh, advertised it on Instagram with clips of the Beatles just drinking tea. And, you know, the mugs that they drank from was a, was a big thing. So there's a real divide in British society on tea and coffee in which the Beatles and Bond are just <laughs> on such complete opposite sides. What school did Ian Fleming go to? He went to Eton. Uh, I think he was kicked out of Eton. Uh, then he went. I can't remember off the top of my head. It's 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 probably in there. But it's it, but he is pure Tory boy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the only real political act he did was to um, I think he manned the uh, the the railway um, uh, when when during the general strike. He sort of turned up to help keep the railway sort of going. So he was against the general strike. But uh, he, his politics. There was an awful lot of fascists around him. It's not saying he was a fascist himself, but it, he did a he did have Mussolini's passport. He did own Mussolini's passport, and he like and there was a lot of very fascist sort of people who sort of came to his flat or he rented the flat from. And uh, when he edited a, a, a magazine at Eton, they, there was an article in there about how we needed to establish fascism in British public schools and, and all this sort of stuff. His politics, I think, it's fair to say, were extremely far to the right this was i'm obviously talking about before world war ii here this is you know the the upper classes flirted quite heavily with fascism in a way that they kind of would rather we didn't talk about now it's 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 a bit sort of hushed up slightly but he was very much in part of 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 that The, the he believed in he believed in the right families the right bloodlines you know some people were better than others and all this sort of stuff that was that was very much Ian Fleming. In the end, didn't he have a home in the Caribbean? Mm. Yeah, Goldeneye. It's, a, it's such a beautiful part of the world. Uh, he had it just, it was his writing retreat for three months every winter where he would go and write the Bond um, novels. But for him, Jamaica was the last bastion of the British Empire where you know, an Englishman could sort of live in, in tolerable weather and the, the servants weren't too uppity and all, all this all this sort of, at that time, hugely sort of delusional belief about the role of Britain in the, in the world. And, um, you know, obviously uh, Jamaica got its independence very, very shortly afterwards. He was not in sync with um, the politics of the, of the time or the people of the time. Uh, but by quite a quite a di- quite a distance, because the Bond ethos, if there is such a thing, it's really really not terribly right on, is it? It's it woke is not in the Bond character. Well, yes, I mean you say that, but um, for the last film, the word uh, woke wasn't enough for the Daily Mail. They had to uh, they had to coin the phrase super woke. 
<laughs> to describe uh, No Time to Die, the last great uh, Daniel Craig film. And what fascinates me about Bond is the extent to which the character has changed over the last 60 years, almost from the moment that Ian Fleming died, the character started to change and evolve in ways that um, don't think Ian Fleming would have been very happy with at all. I don't think he'd have got on with Roger Moore's portrayal for a start, let alone, you know, Daniel, Daniel's Craig's. So um, the character's almost become like a, a marker of what a sort of an idealised sort of um, masculine fantasy, for want of a better phrase, has been over the past decades and you can you can see it changing you can see it moving and it, you know, it's obviously not you know ideologically pure no one's going to you know def- defend it ideologically but it is it is in the territory where change does happen and it is an interesting map of the um of the distance we've come of of, of the what the idea of being male of being a man in britain how much that has changed. It is mapped by these films. Would Ian Fleming, or was Ian Fleming a Beatle fan? No, no. His, his entire class were, were just fu- furious the world. That's, it was a real sort of, we forget now, but it was a real um, challenge to the establishment. There's uh, one of the things that started me writing this book was an essay that Hanif Qureshi wrote about his time uh, at school where he was taught by his teachers that the Beatles didn't write their own music um, because how could they, you know, they weren't from the right families. They weren't, they weren't, they didn't go to the right schools. They were from Liverpool of all people. It was obviously a con and it had to be the more, you know, refined George Martin or Brian Epstein who were behind this, this con. Uh, And, uh, Hanif Kreshi wrote this really insightful thing about how he realised his teacher couldn't accept um, that the Beatles were making this music that was so self-evidently better than what other people were doing, because as he put it, it would take too much away. His entire worldview was was based on the the notion that people at certain schools and people from certain families were superior. So the the, the arrival of people from outside that world who were doing things that, you know, his peers could never do was a real challenge. And that's kind of why um, uh, Prime Minister Wilson was so astute giving the, the Beatles the MBE because it just infuriated the uh, establishment to such an extent. And there's so many people sending them, them back. And, it, and it's even to this day, you can see, I mean, like, on Paul McCartney's 80th birthday, all the newspapers aren't everything. Oh, it's Paul McCartney's 80th birthday. If you look at the Times, the, the article that the Times run was headed, um, uh, were the Beatles just lucky, right? That, that was, that was their, that, their article for the 80th birthday of Sir Paul McCartney. And you have to think, what, what was the chain of thought that led to the editors going, yeah, that's the right angle. That captures the, the national sort of mood. You know, there's a, there's a real, there's still a real sort of resistance for a lot of, um, I mean, if you look at, um, I'm, I'm thinking of people like, uh, what's his name? Um, Dominic, uh, ah, what's his name? Oh, it's escaped, it's escaped from my head. But there's a lot, of, there's various um, historians who, 
refused to accept that there was something unique about the Beatles. And they will argue that if the Beatles hadn't come along, then, you know, you know maybe Jerry and the Pacemakers would have been the band of the 60s. Uh, and it's odd because they never say, oh, well, if Hitler, had, no, sorry, if Churchill hadn't come along, someone else would have come along and then did what he did. There's this odd resistance still from the establishment to sort of recognise uh, what has been going on there. Does that come from the same mindset as the one that suggests we might like to go back to pounds and ounces? You know, uh, <laughs> is, is, is it part of the golden myth of the golden past, make England great again? Possibly. It's, I mean, it, it's interesting because Bond was very much um, about being modern, as was the Beatles, two different visions of modernity. Um, and... Uh, you know, Bond was very much, you know, we'll have gadgets and, you know, we'll be going to beautiful places around the world. This is before, you know, the package holidays and people could travel to the extent, you know. Uh, the idea of going to Jamaica was so exotic, so sort of wonderful and having these cars and fancy watches and things like that. It was a real sort of, it was a vision of the future where things had changed, but attitudes hadn't. Our attitudes were like remaining exactly the same. Whereas the Beatles, they, the Beatles always about, no, our attitudes are completely changing. Our attitudes to relationships, emotional things, sex, drugs, religion, all these things were changing. But they were still attached to, you know, the, the, the faux Victoriana of Sergeant Pepper. You know, they wrote their songs about childhood, Penny Lane, Strawberry Fields Forever. They, they were still attached to things, but they, it was attitudes they wanted to change. Where the future in the Bond universe was the opposite. Keep the attitudes and and change the things your book is meticulous there's a lot of it it's um it's Ooh. a long read as it must have taken a, a few days to write did you become <laughs> more of a beatles fan at the end than you were at the beginning i did actually um i just think they're a joy and, and you know i've obviously had to read a lot of books about the beatles before i could begin to to do that and you would think that after a short period of time it would be get you you'd know enough and it would be a bit of a a bit of a chore but the, the the more you know about them the more fascinating they become their, their story is so rich um and i think in maybe the 70s and the 80s a lot of journalism and writing about the beatles was very much focused uh around the idea of competition like who was the best was john Lennon the best was paul mccartney the best um which very much fits with the individualism of the of the times. And we've kind of moved beyond that now. And we realise it's the relationship between them all that is where the alchemy lies, which is where the the uh, the extra sort of special you know, spirit of the thing comes from. And so people are writing about the Beatles much more as a love story now. It's about the, the love of these sort of four men and how their relationships changed under this sort of intense, insane sort of pressure. Uh, and it's revealing far more than the, you know, the, the old idea of competition as the key to, to unlocking them. I mean, you sound to me uh, like Mark Lewison, who his career, his job is writing about the Beatles. And he... Yeah what they did every day is sort of all the way through. And you sort of make the point that these men have had their lives chronicled probably more than anybody else who has ever lived. 
I think I do believe that's true. I have yet to come up with someone else. It's because it's partly the, the immense fame from the very beginning sort of trained every camera on them and every journalist and everything was recorded. And, you know, everyone they met has told people about their, about their story. Um, it's partly because they were at the start of the TV age uh, and, you know, um, recorded on tape and, thing, and things like that. I don't think anything has come quite close to it. It's... Uh, unless I'm missing something. Yeah. But I mean, Mark Lewison is, um, I, I, I want to call him Sir Mark Lewison. I think if we call him Sir Mark, it will happen. I think a lot of Beatles fans uh, are extremely grateful just for the detail and the, the accuracy of him as a historian. And we're all, we're all fearful that, you know, he might get hit by a truck before he finishes that immense uh, trilogy of books that, he, that he's writing. But his, his work is very much, um, uh, about what happened. He's really nailing down what happened. Um, there's a sort of a move in Beatles books now, I think, to sort of say, well, we know what happened, but what does it mean? And that's a really rich and interesting sort of thing because the further we get from it, the sort of the, the, the better perspective we have and the, the larger it becomes and the more... Um, you know, it wasn't that long ago that we used to talk about the Beatles and the Stones as if they were, you know, equals or in some way comparable. That's gone now, I think. It's people talk about the, you know, the Beatles and Shakespeare now. The further away we get, the more um, significant they become. And we hadn't noticed because they were so domestic. They were so familiar. They were just part of everybody's family. So it didn't seem uh, in any way extraordinary, but uh, extraordinary is what they were, I think. Um, I love in the book how you analyze places where the Bond and the Beatles met. There was Magical Mystery Tour, and you highlight that there was um, an actor on the Bond movie who was also in Magical Mystery Tour. Plain oh, yes, I think you're talking about um, uh, the guy in Hard Day's Night and um, Goldfinger. Yeah, uh, and I, in my the, the, bowl, the guy with the bowler hat. Um, whose name is escaping me again at the moment. Uh, there, uh, there's a couple of actors in both. Uh, and the, it's fascinating how different their visions of Britain were, those two films that came out in the same year and are, are still, you know, widely regarded as some of the best British films ever. I, I think it's the, the notion of the bowler hat, you know, in, in Goldfinger, odd job would throw the bowler hat at this... Uh, people he was trying to kill and then bowler hat was a thing to be feared but in hard day's night bowler hat is a thing to be mocked and that was where the country was at that time trying to work out is a bowler hat a thing to be feared a thing to be mocked you can sort of see you see the change of the country uh in that in that sort of uh in that question and um is that from your viewpoint as a commentator is is that battle still raging um has a winner been declared well it's it's a very good question it's in terms of what um in terms of how the establishment justified their sense of superiority i do think the beatles sort of wiped that away i think by the time you get to the 1970s and you get things like monty python and they're sort of mocking the upper class twits and the the um the establishment figure had become just an image of ridicule, uh, something quite farcical. 
um, in a way it wasn't before the Beatles. I think that has certainly changed. And so with that was a lot of justification that the, the privileged were superior. I think that has gone. However, you know, um, wealth and, you know, connections and all these things still exist and still there. There's, um, there's much more of a move uh, amongst the, the well-connected to p- describe themselves as like working class or um, uh, they've got what or claim that they've got where they did because of hard work and, and things like that, rather than just going, it's my family and we're, you know, we're the sort of the best. Um, the, yeah, the, yeah the, the, the stories changed, but the, the, the concentrations of, of, of wealth and privilege and connections are still, are still there. They're just a bit more exposed and uh, they're a bit harder to defend these days, but they're, they're stubborn and they're there still. The fight goes on. The fight goes on. I love your story uh, about George Lazenby. Um, now, he was from Australia, wasn't he? He was, yes. Yeah. And um, when all the Beatles thing was going on, he grew his hair, uh, which yeah. didn't look like Bond at all. And therefore, some people wouldn't like him. They didn't want him to be Bond looking like that. Particularly Kirby Broccoli, the producer of the of the Bond films, he he um, wouldn't let him come to the premiere because his hair had grown and he looked like it didn't look bad. He looked like George Best basically. He just looked a lot like he had a bit black beard and the, the hair. Um, and the idea that uh, people don't understand that actors can have different hairstyles than the roles they play, you know, is. It's, it's, it's an odd one to think that you'd get so angry, but it's an extent to which changing hairstyles were the um, the raw edge of the culture war during the 1960s. We all, you know, hear so much about the culture war now, but it's it was it's always there. And uh, hairstyles was a, a hair on men in particular was was you know the, the most immediate signifier that was that was the territory that sort of people were fighting over because the generation earlier they'd been in the war they had army regulation haircuts um you know they 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 had a vision of uh of masculinity um which was you know you were strong you were good at fighting um you were met you know you were you were no nonsense and things like that uh and as a generation growing up and learning this from war comics and, and how to sort of behave but suddenly the Beatles came and their, their hair, it wasn't all, you know, covered in brill cream and slipped back and stuff like that. It was, it was glossy and it was clean. And it was for that, that time, very, very sort of effeminate looking because they, you know, because of the length of it. And um, women seemed to like this. This was very confusing for men because it was the opposite of what they were being raised to, to, to you know, believe being a man should be. So it was a, it was um, a real dividing line. The, uh, the, the generational gap um, from the silent generation to the baby boomers was, a, was um, a, a real break. You know, it wasn't like going from the baby boomers to Generation X to the millennials. That was a, a constant thing. It was a real, real split. And hair was the, the you know, the, the front line in this war, hair on men in particular. I want to take you forward a lot. Um, uh, I have in my extended family a yoga teacher. And mm. in the village where I live, there's yoga all the 
flipping time. And, <laughs> and I once went to a gig and sat, uh, I was invited by the Maharishi's lot, and I sat next oh, yes. to the minister of um, not dying. Um, and, <laughs> and the other side of me was the minister of flight. You know, <laughs> uh, it was nonsense. Mm. Um, the Beatles went along with this for a while because it's very, uh, it, it's very attractive. And you say we wouldn't have yoga teachers like we do if the Beatles hadn't gone with the Maharishi. I think so. I mean, the thing with the Beatles was they were the most famous and successful entertainers on the planet. And when all the eyes of the world are on them, they sort of sucked up all these um influences from the counterculture and from the avant-garde and they just used them themselves and they sort of you know sprayed them the mainstream with them and it's hard to think of other uh, another sort of transmission vector for sort of you know radical ideas um like them you know uh, they, uh, people would still in the 1960s people were still experimenting with you know psychedelic drugs but they wouldn't have been as that wouldn't have been as well known if it wasn't for, you know, the summer of love and the Beatles sort of uh, putting it out there. And certainly non-Christian religions and Eastern religions and, and various ideas were a large part of the things that had been on the sidelines, but the Beatles sort of picked up and sort of put right down in the middle uh, of, of the culture for people to sort of be shocked by. I think it was the queen who t told the uh, head of EMI, the Beatles have got awfully funny, haven't they, around this time, <laughs> which was <laughs> which was quite accurate, I think, yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, we like that. Some of us who thought um, Strawberry Fields was just the best thing. Um, mm. And it wasn't 4-4 uh, beat all the time. It was something else. Or yeah. love was something else. Definitely, absolutely. But it's interesting that when Strawberry Fields came out, you know, it was a bit much for people. Like, it didn't go to number one. It was their first record not to go to number one. And you have, like, references in, like, Joe Orton's diaries, the first hearing it and going, well, I like Penny Lane, but that Strawberry Fields is a bit weird. Um, now we're growing up in a world where records like Strawberry Fields forever exist, and we've got our heads around it and we're familiar with it, and we, and we can listen to it now and just go, my God, that's just great. That's a really, that's a phenomenal piece of work um, because we're used to it. We sort of caught up. They'd sort of got a little bit ahead of the rest of us when that came out. Um, yeah, I, I don't think anyone now, now thinks of Strawberry Fields Forever as, uh, um, you know, not a success, even though it sort of failed to get to number one. And now it's one of the great pinnacles of 20th century music. One of the things you write about is Ringo Starr. Um, yes. You talk to Mark Lewis, and he will bang on about Ringo Starr, how good he was. But mm. um, if uh, Ian Fleming had had his way and there was no NHS, we might not have had Richie Starkey, um, Ringo Starr. Oh, absolutely. I mean, his childhood just almost feels Dickensian now when you, you read about... Um, uh, he was so ill during he had lots of uh, illnesses of poverty really uh, he was um he was not expected to his live his mother was told he was going to uh, not make it on numerous uh, numerous occasions he spent summers um well a long long time in um a hospital on the Wirral and lost all his schooling and and, and things like that and if it was just because 
it was that post-war period and the NHS had been established that he was cared for uh, because his background and the level of poverty he came for. Um, it's, I mean, it's possible there was a lot of, you know, religious charities and, uh, and things like that, but it's, it's quite possible that we wouldn't have had him without the NHS. And, um, and a last thought, John. Um, there's the John the, the Bond thing on one side, and there's the Beatles on the other. Lots of young men going to see Bond thought that having a relationship with a Bond girl would be pretty darn good. Who married the Bond girl? Oh, who else? Who, the most deserving, the what? The, the right person, Ringo Starr. The book is called Love and Let Die. Bond, the Beatles and the British Psyche by John Higgs. Huge congratulations, John. Great read. That's very kind. It's lovely talking to you, David.